You are listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This morning, Alaska reported four new cases of avian flu in wild birds, according to the uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Previously, there were only confirmed cases in poultry in that state. Thirty-four other U.S. states have also detected avian flu in both their wild bird and their poultry populations. These new cases of what is called the highly pathogenic avian influenza stands to raise the level of concern for officials with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. We talked to veterinarian Samantha Gibbs yesterday about the risk to Hawaii's migratory birds. Our kulea, uh, or Pacific Golden Plovers, are already on their way to Alaska. Gibbs, who is out of Washington, D.C., has done work on Kauai and Midway Atoll. There's certainly a possibility for these long migratory birds to move viruses around. And there are a few species that do spend time in Alaska and also down in Hawaii. And one that you mentioned is the Pacific Golden Plover. That's certainly a concern of ours, along with some of the pelagic birds that come up to Alaska and also breed down in Hawaii, such as the Lazan albatross. But luckily, in the past, we have not seen any cases in albatross, and we are concerned that many of these birds could carry the virus, but we're less concerned that it would impact their health. But the rules are out the window at the moment because the impact that highly pathogenic avian influenza is having on our wild bird species in the lower 48 is much greater than we've seen in the past. So this virus in particular seems to be a little less predictable. Describe to our listeners what you are seeing in those states. So in those states, we've seen a number of wild bird species being affected. Either they're getting sick or they're dying. We've confirmed avian influenza, the highly pathogenic avian influenza, in 63 species of wild birds in the lower 48 so far. And some of those species are more susceptible than others to illness when they're infected. The raptors in particular seem to be very susceptible to illness and death. And we're seeing mortalities in eagles, other hawk species, as well as vultures. The ducks, the geese, and the shorebirds, those are historically less susceptible than raptors to illness caused by highly pathogenic avian influenza. But as I mentioned, this current virus strain has really been causing mortalities in even multiple species of ducks and geese, which is a little bit different from in the past. The primary way that the raptors are getting exposed to highly pathogenic influenza is actually by consuming other birds that have fallen ill with the virus. So it's what they eat. Yes. Black vultures in particular are being very hard hit, mostly because they roost in these large communal roosts. Primarily in the southeast we're seeing this, but we have had some cases in Maryland now, and we expect this may be creating a sustainable transmission of the virus among vultures at these very large roosts, and we're seeing sometimes hundreds of birds a day die. And what type of surveillance is being done in these communities So across the country, there is an interagency steering committee for surveillance of highly pathogenic avian influenza in wild birds. And we've been operating since 2006 because avian influenza has been a threat for quite some time. And we all work together on a biweekly basis to touch bases and design surveillance systems and make sure that we are picking up on where the detections might be most probable. So there's been a number of surveillance efforts taking place in each of the flyways, so Pacific Flyway, the Mississippi, the Atlantic, and the Central Flyways. And by doing that surveillance, we're able to provide a little bit of an early warning for the poultry industry. And also that enables us to give a bit of a warning to places like Hawaii when we pick it up in areas such as Alaska that may have some overlap in migratory bird activity. Are there particular challenges with these cases in Alaska? You know, where are they turning up? So far, the cases in Alaska have been in domestic poultry, but certainly there are logistical challenges in Alaska. There are many areas where there aren't people around to detect a mortality or illness in a wild bird. So part of it is sending folks out in the field deliberately to perform surveillance, and some of it is what we call passive surveillance, where people in the field notice that there are sick or dead birds and submit those for testing. Are we seeing this disease hit, you know, like feral chickens? So far, 
not so much, but the, as we call it, the Hawaiian chicken gap for our surveillance has always been a problem in that they don't fall under the jurisdiction of any of our federal agencies. And sometimes the state agencies aren't sure whether they fall under the agricultural state agency or the natural resources agency. And I noticed in, in preparing for this interview that, that there's some movement in trying to decrease the number of feral chickens in Hawaii at the moment. For the Fish and Wildlife Services part, we are preparing our refuge personnel so there are 11 national wildlife refuges in the state of Hawaii and 18 total in the Pacific Islands. And we're working with each of those refuges to make sure that our personnel are ready to investigate any outbreaks and to work with the Wildlife Disease Diagnostic Laboratory assessments for avian influenza testing. So they're trained in the proper biosafety and biosecurity measures to limit spread of the disease as well as protecting themselves. Then outside of that, the best approach for the folks in the general public is to first contact the Hawaii Department of Land and Natural Resources, their Division of Forestry and Wildlife Office on the island where they find these birds. And those contacts can be found in the downed wildlife contact page on the Hawaii Department of Land and Natural Resources site if anybody finds sick or deceased birds. They're really the best place for members of the public to go first and then they'll reach out to us if they need assistance. We've seen what's happened with this pandemic. You know, people are, are concerned about diseases, jumping species. Any cases yet? There have been two cases so far, one in Great Britain and one in Colorado. And both of those cases were in instances where the person was in very frequent and intense contact with infected birds. So one gentleman had ducks around him in his household and the other person was working to help depopulate an infected chicken farm in Colorado. So those cases certainly were outliers in terms of the amount that they were exposed to, and that would be highly unusual for members of the public to be in a situation where they're exposed to infected birds at that intensity. The CDC has mentioned that it's a low risk for general public to contract highly pathogenic avian influenza, but that risk can increase with the amount of exposure like those two cases I mentioned. Okay. And um, gosh, I'm just trying to think. Uh, anything else? I mean, I don't really know what our uh, refuges can do, you know, because you can't exactly put up barriers and say, nope, you can't come. <laughs> you know, they just have so to primarily step Primarily, we try and make sure that if there are areas where the public frequent that have dead birds present, we may either close off one particular area for public access or another opportunity is for us to clear up those carcasses in a safe manner and make sure that people aren't coming into contact with them. Okay. All right. So uh, so uh, have you got any feel then? I mean, oh, is it August when we might, you know, be on extra alert when these birds come back? I don't know which, com you know, who comes back first. Yeah, it would, it would depend on when they arrive and also whether they're even able to uh, carry the virus with them. One of the concerns that Fish and Wildlife Service has is what the impact this virus may have on our populations of wild birds. That was a conversation we had with Dr. Samantha Gibbs yesterday. Since we chatted, new cases have turned up in the wild bird population in Alaska. Uh, it's a troubling development as the avian influenza cases spread across the vast region where many migratory birds from across the country, including Hawaii, are flocking to. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. In 2016, CNN reported on an elderly Florida woman waking up in the middle of the night to find an exotic creature sleeping on her chest. 
Needless to say, both were startled and the animal fled to the attic once the woman started screaming. Authorities eventually found the animal and photos show an auburn feline bear-looking creature commonly found in the tropical rainforests of Belize. Kinkajous belong to the raccoon family and are directly related to the red panda. They can grow to two feet in length and weigh up to six pounds. Unlike its rodent relatives, these animals share a common trait with monkeys. They, too, have a long tail used for balance and as a fifth, and, as a fifth hand while, when climbing. They are able to travel at high speeds by jumping from tree to tree. And did you know that the Honolulu Zoo was home to a kinkajou that holds a Guinness World Record? For today's quiz, tell us the record and the name of this famous tree hugger. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nerit Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to providing workforce housing for growing families, such as the Kauai Housing Development Corporation. NeritHawaii.com. Aquino is a University of Hawaii Emeritus Professor of Philippine Studies who was blacklisted under President Ferdinand Marcos's regime. As a college student attending Cornell, she didn't return to her homeland for decades, and she ended up uh, calling Hawaii home. We talked to her following the election of Marcos Jr., whose nickname is Bong Bong. Here's Aquino. I was undesirable. I was on the blacklist of Marcos. Uh, we started a movement called Movement for Friends of the Filipino People, because it was already a high to martial law. We had a conference in Cornell, where I was a graduate student then. We called it Alternatives to Martial Law, because martial law was already enforced in the whole country by Marcos. So apparently, that uh, got into the press in uh, the U.S., and the upshot of that was that 150 of us graduate students in mostly the East Coast universities, like Cornell, were in the blacklist of Mr. Marcos, who said that these 150 students, uh, Filipinos in the U.S., are engaged in activities that are undesirable or something like that for national security. So you, you were not able to go back home? No, because my, my friends there advised me not to go home because some of them went home. This was uh, when martial law was already enforced from 1972 to 73, and some went underground and some never, uh, never surfaced. Some were jailed, and so I was afraid I might, you know, get in trouble. I stayed in the U.S. So you have never gone back to the Philippines since? Uh, gone back and forth when uh, people power uh, succeeded, you know, in 1986. With Cory Aquino? Mm-hmm. Uh, with Cory Aquino, but she was not the one who invited me. I was invited to be the vice president for the University of the Philippines for Public Affairs. Wow. From 1989 to 1991. So I was able to go home then. Mar- Marcos had been overthrown, and ironically, he landed in Hawaii in exile, right? Yes. So, well, how are you viewing this turn of events with the election? I'm very disappointed because we worked very hard here to work for any Robredo who ran against Marcos, and he was not only the more able and qualified because uh, he had already beaten Ferdinand Marcos Jr. in the last elections for vice president. So it's very disappointing in my estimation. Well, what should we do? Because my theory about the whole thing was that Lenny and Kiko were outspent by uh, by the whole Marcos-Duterte combination because they had all the money and uh, the resources that gave them the uh, ability to not only manipulate the, ex- the election, but probably steal it, because that has happened before many times in the Philippines. And uh, I'm, I'm really reading uh, some of the actions in the media, like uh, there was this thing in the advertiser. I had, I had made a statement, and it was uh, printed by the ad- advertiser about uh, how 
uh, this election went on. And today's paper, I think, or maybe yesterday, has this big headline by a New York Times journalist that says, after 36 years, a Marcos again and passed to power. It's a long article. It looks back at the time of the Marcos martial law regime, which existed for 14 years, you know, from 1972-1986, when it was toppled by the People Power Movement in the spring of 1986. That's the whole background of it, and I'm back here. I, I was with the Lenny, Hawaii for Lenny campaign group, and we did a lot of campaigning in Hawaii itself because uh, there was an estimated uh, 2,500 uh, registered voters. I don't know if they all voted of Filipinos, of Filipino, mostly Ilocano ancestry, coming from the uh, uh, province of uh, Ferdinand Marcos Jr. and his family. Right, so you thought that there was a, a, a chance to be able to win over those yes, votes? Yes, yes, because there was a very, very, every, every, of course, every poll that he conducted was favoring him, but uh, the other, uh, you know, information we had was that the organizations and institutions who supported Lenny, like the Catholic groups there and some universities uh, were also doing fine. So I'm sure they're disappointed. And uh, at first, I don't know if she has conceded, but uh, I think uh, she has not conceded. That means that uh, there are certain doubts about this whole election. Many of these uh, reactions are now being played out. So do you think people just have short memories? Yes, I think so. Uh, Although um, not in the case of the older generations, though, in Hawaii, because they were grateful to Marcos Sr., Ferdinand Marcos Sr., because uh, he thought that he, he he did everything. He did so much for infra- infrastructure development in the locals and so on. So it was not a surprise that uh, many of them, or most of them, voted for another Marcos, hoping that perpetuate something that they had profited, benefited uh, from while they were still in the Philippines. Uh, so that's the irony of it. And Marcos himself, Jr., has repeatedly said in the campaign that he would not apologize <laughs> for the legacy of his father who died in exile in Hawaii in 1989. And he has campaigned for years to recast the Marcos dictatorship as an era of development, which was really a, a lie, which is a lie up to now, because what happened was the Marcos regime became a symbol of greed and excess in terms of how they stole, collected a huge amount of money that they stashed away in Swiss banks and other uh, tax uh, havens that they uh, founded foundations in, and Marcos Jr. is the beneficiary of many of these foundations that are existing. I think people just find it surprising that even after what has passed that Bong Bong and his sister and his mother yes. uh, all held office. Yes, but then those offices were, like in the case of Bong Bong, he was, what, vice governor or uh, whatever he was. All those positions were not because he was a brilliant politician. Or, they were all given to him. He was just appointed uh, as a matter of uh, convenience because his father was um, the martial law dictator in the Philippines. He has not, in my opinion, done anything that would distinguish him as his own person. You worry, though, that he's just going to try and rewrite history. Uh, yes, because uh, uh, he has already said, and again, this, uh, there are many sources for this, it says, Marcos, this is referring to Bong Bong, has said he, quote, would try to shield Duterte, this is uh, Rodrigo Duterte, the current president, from international court proceedings. Because there are several uh, charges against President Duterte himself, uh, the current president, because of his draconian policies on the drug war. Thousands have been killed without benefit of defense or recourse to their own uh, position, and they're mostly coming from poor families in the Manila area, slum areas, and many of them, you know, were just put away like this. This Marcos Jr. has said that he would shield Duterte from international court proceedings because there are already charges against Rodrigo Duterte in the International Court of Justice. So what is your greatest fear? 
it's good that this has reached that point in the International Court of Justice, and you would hope, one would hope, that they would study the evidence that have been offered with regard to how draconian Duterte's policies have been in trying to put away these drug addicts and users and promoters. So that's my greatest fear, that will just be all washed away, you know, that kind of thing. This is a whole thing that needs some understanding of the context. Now, if Junior, Marcos Junior, who is now president, and the daughter, Vice President Sara Duterte, is the daughter of the current president, who will still be in power because he has only one term. So this is a kind of, uh, it would weaken the goal of the liberal forces asking for justice because already Marcos Jr. Bongbong has said that he would support the Duterte administration from the impunity that has been happening when Duterte uh, was uh, uh, elected president. And this, this thing, I think, will only deepen uh, the, the, the divide in Philippine society. Now we are both under the Marcoses and the Duterte dynasties, <laughs> we want to call it that. Even Catherine, it's like, uh, to quote a friend of mine, it's like making Dracula in charge of the blood bank. <laughs> you know, uh, it's, it's, it's really just you know, crazy. We've been hearing from Lindy Aquino, and those who share Aquino's views on the election results gathered at Ala Moana Beach Park this past uh, Sunday where they've met uh, every weekend for the last three or four months. They had hoped to convince some of the thousands of Hawaii residents who were eligible to vote in the Philippines election to cast a vote for Lenny Robredo. Uh, we hear first from uh, Gary Ladao and then Rose Cherma. We are here today to conduct our indignation vigil, to share with each other you know, our views and our, how we felt about the election that happened in the Philippines. We're also here to show our solidarity with the rest of the Filipino people who are also expressing their indignation and their rejection of the Marcos Duterte win. We are rejecting the Marcos and Duterte presidency because we don't believe that it's valid. We believe that there's a lot of uh, discrepancy, there's a lot of disenfranchisement among the voters and it's very, very questionable. A lot of people believe that it's we were cheated through the use of cult voting machines as well as through vote buying, massive vote buying. And prior to that, there's also a massive uh, disinformation campaign that was done through uh, social media as well as a very, very aggressive attempt for uh, historical revisionism, meaning they spread lies and you know, wrong information about the past, especially the period of martial law. The former Marcos reigned for over 20 years in power, 14 years of martial law, uh, where there's uh, thousands of people were killed, incarcerated, and tortured, and uh, our human rights were violated. Uh, but they were painting it as the glory days of Philippine history. And so we are condemning that. What Lenny provided was hope that there could be change and I think that's what we were all hoping for is that positive change and I think regardless of whether in paper he will be proclaimed the president but I think we should not lose the the issues that she put across you know volunteerism civic engagement vigilance against corruption and plunder we need to be engaged. We cannot be apathetic. And I think that's what she ignited in the youth, in the folks in the Philippines, at least a portion of them. And then, you know, there were, what, some 8,000 votes, I think, from Hawaii that uh, were cast in this election? Yeah, 8,000 plus. The majority, of course, went for Marcos. But Hawaii is unique in the sense that we have a lot of folks from the Ilocos coming here. And for them, the Apo, that's still, there's still that uh, fanaticism with the Marcos mystique which is, uh, you know, they had it good back then, so they feel that that's the same way for the Philippines. But it's a lot of atrocities still. We still have a lot of uh, justice to fight for. And there have been uh, judgments, one in the courts, yes. you know, about the human rights violations. Yes. You know, it, it has been hard to collect. Yes, yes. I believe a portion of it came from the paintings, from the real estate that the Marcus has owned here. And I think Sherry Broder was able to pay out some of the victims. But there's still a lot more, I think, that needs to be collected. 
Did it surprise you? I know there was an article in the paper, yet another painting was spotted, a Picasso on the wall. Yes. Oh, well, they claimed it's fake because they were supposed to have confiscated that, right? But I don't know. I mean, it's like, oh, to me, it's like there's just so many issues that you fight for. For me personally, to me, it's like continuing on what I have been doing, which is really fighting this information, uh, making sure there's no historic revisionism of what happened. And I want to seek justice for the human rights martyrs, you know. They just stood up for what they believed in and they got killed, they got those. So that one, and people forgot already. You know, these are my classmates, these were my relatives. People forgot, and I think we should we should remember. There was, we owe it to them. Yes, we owe it to them. You know, like, here we're safe here, safe, quote in quote, but you know, now the fear is growing again in the Philippines. But it will not stop them, they will still try to fight for those principles. There was a quote that I saw that you cannot fight, you cannot convince people with facts or with truth, but with empathy. So I think this, this next chapter is really to tell their stories, because I believe that we can still bring out truth, but we have to include empathy, which, which means we have to recognize, look at the martyrs as human beings who lived, who have stories to tell, and for us writers, or those who have that skill, you know, have skill access to media to tell the stories of these people. Because it's only then that, you know, that perhaps those folks can, can get engaged and realize that, yes, these atrocities happen. You know, when it's abstraction, it doesn't hit you, right? Human rights, what is that? It's an abstraction. You have to touch their heart. Exactly, exactly. And that's probably, if you're an artist, if you're a writer, that's the way. If you're in, in journalism, you're a storyteller, that's the way to do it, I think. And that's why for me personally, what I'd like to see is a work of art that would represent the unknown human rights martyr that we can have here in Hawaii, that every year we can gather to tell the stories of those who had died and who had been tortured. We need a symbol, you know, to rally around because if you look at it, martial law, this is the 50th anniversary, nothing happens. And I think it's up to us to really make sure that people remember. That's all we can do, you know, to remember. That was Rose Cherma and Gary Ladell. Opposition voices from a gathering at Ala Moana Beach Park this weekend. The group had hoped they would be celebrating a win for their candidate, Lenny Robredo, but instead held an indignation vigil over the landslide victory for the Marcos Duterte ticket. We should note that next month, Filipino-American journalist Maria Ressa will take part in an East-West Center International Media Conference here in Honolulu. Ressa was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for her coverage of the human rights violations of the Duterte administration. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with a mission to create relevant and transformative experiences through art with collections of Asian, European, and American works, including arts of Hawaii and textiles. HonoluluMuseum.org. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, the demand for a spot at America's top colleges is higher than ever. So why don't they increase supply? Reputation matters. And is an elite degree mainly a status symbol? I think that's a gross mischaracterization of American higher education. The second part of our special series on higher ed, it's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Beginning this evening at 7, following Counterspan. Support for HPR comes from Blue Note Hawaii, located in the outrigger Waikiki, presenting Tito Jackson of the Jackson 5, performing songs such as Love One Another in two sets nightly this Friday and Saturday. Tickets at bluenotehawaii.com. Civil Beats Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair joins us today for our reality check. He's here to talk about hemp. It's a story by reporter Thomas Heaton. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. Yes, so hemp. Um, I recall being out in a field in Waimanalo and I was stunned at how big those plants were. 
Yeah, uh, you know, the people that have been pushing for hemp as a local market, one valued at no less than $54 million. That's the local market, the potential have been pushing for uh, easing restrictions and regulations on hemp for some time now. It actually dates back to the Cayetano administration back in 1999 when Hawaii first started look at changing the books regarding hemp. But here it is a long time later, and Thomas is reporting in his story today that there's actually a lot of farmers that have been trying to get this business going, and they're quitting. They're just giving up because it's taking forever for Hawaii to ease its regulations. They're even selling the land. And in particular, Thomas's focus is on a bill uh, that uh, at the last minute was gutted at the state legislature, that's Senate Bill 2986. The bill would have improved access to, to local markets for people that process hemp and want to sell it online. It would have changed this three-day notification regarding transporting it or testing it or inspecting it, a few other things. But in fact, the bill was changed, gutted and replaced is the the term. And all it really does is ensure that hemp remains legal until 2025 here, but really does nothing uh, to help, according to the people that Thomas interviewed, and he talked to a lot of folks, really market hemp so that they can make a living off of it. Yeah, I mean, their criticism is there's just too many restrictions and you're not allowing you know this to really flourish. Right. And the reason why uh, it didn't pass has a lot to do with pressure from some lawmakers, but also agencies, including the attorney general's office, uh, also the EGA administration, which has said that really hemp could be a proxy for an illicit marijuana trade. Uh, Now, you know, Thomas did talk to one expert about this who studies hemp production across the country. And he says it's just a false narrative. Producing hemp is not going to lead to cultivating marijuana on the black market. Yes, there are some bad actors that will do that, but it's such a small part of it. Uh, In fact, look to California and Oregon and Washington. The difference there, of course, is that they've allowed recreational marijuana. We don't have legalized recreational marijuana in Hawaii. We, We decriminalize small amounts, but it's not yet recreational. And so bottom line, they think that hemp somehow gets you high. In fact, no, there's a very, very tiny percentage, less than 1%, 0.3% actually of THC in hemp. And and yet there's a concern that somehow it's going to lead to people uh, illegally uh, growing and selling marijuana. Yeah. And it was uh, uh, Representative Cynthia Thielen, I know, who was leading the charge, oh, yeah. right? And, uh, you know, she was saying we could use this in things in construction material like um, uh, hempcrete, uh, you know. Hempcrete, right. Yes, instead of you concrete. Know? Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, it's an agricultural crop. It, it has other benefits. It, it's used in food and in, in, uh, medical products, therapeutics, any number of, of cases or applications, rather. You know, I should also add, Thomas did mention that currently there are some interim rules. They're, they're pending before the health department here the Department of Ag, and, and among other things, it, it could prohibit growing hemp within 500 feet of someone's property. It could allow for inspections. It, and by the way, if there's a violation, let's say that you get it within 499 feet, could be a $10,000 fine. Well, there's, we're getting, still getting public input on these rules. I don't know when they're going to be finalized, but this is another thing uh, where hemp farmers Hemp producers have said, look, you're, you're really trying to kill an industry here that could be so beneficial, particularly to a state that talks about wanting to, what's the famous word, diversify, to diversify ag. Yeah, I mean, just a, a, a lot of criticism about uh, how we're really not really serious in promoting this industry. Yeah, I should just add, by the way, there's been a lot of progress at the federal level. The 2014 U.S. Farm Bill actually allowed states to to have hemp pilot projects. And since then, it's gotten even better uh, And by 2018 fully legalizing hemp. But Hawaii still has some regulatory control. And so there's there's the rub there, the, the federal versus the, um, the, uh, the state agency. So we'll see. Uh, Mike or Thomas did talk to Mike Gabbard and some others. They said, we'll bring it up again next session, 2023. Okay. All right. Yeah, some issues won't go away. But thanks so much, Jed. Heard that before. <laughs> yes. <laughs> thanks, Catherine. Bye-bye. That was Honolulu Civil Beat editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. You can read uh, Thomas Eaton's story online at civilbeat.org.
For today's Backyard Quiz, we told you about the kinkajous, whose name, translated from Indian, means honey bear. Those nocturnal animals are indigenous to tropical rainforests of southern Mexico, Belize, and southern Brazil. Although kinkajous are members of the raccoon family and have ties to the red pandas of China and the Himalayans, their behavior more uh, closely resembles that of a monkey. Both, uh, Both of them have tails that act as a fifth hand. According to National Geographic, they can also turn their feet backwards, which allows them to move easily in either direction along horizontal branches or vertically up and down tree trunks. And believe it or not, Hawaii was once home to a world record-holding kinkajou. Born in 1962, Sugar Bear was a lifetime resident of the Honolulu Zoo. He lived to be 40 years and six months and continues to hold that title for being the oldest kinkajou in captivity. We had no winners. We stumped you on that one. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Emergency medical technicians and paramedics are in the spotlight today as we mark a national uh, EMS, Emergency Medical Services Week. These first responders are often overlooked when compared to the attention given to police officers and firefighters. Many may not know that we're short-staffed on Oahu when it comes to EMTs and paramedics. It's a situation that's been stretched even further by the onset of the pandemic two years ago. Mark Kunemune is the clinical coordinator at Kapi'olani Community College's Emergency Medical Services Department. He recently started taking first responders to work in the Ho'okua'aina taro fields in Kailua as a way to process increased stress with all the trauma they're exposed to. The conversation's Russell Subiono takes us to Oahu's windward side to talk with Kunemune out in the loi. So yeah, there are two levels. There are EMTs are emergency medical technicians and they're paramedics and the paramedics are the higher trained folks. I would like the public to know the extent of what paramedics do out there in the field. You know, EMS hasn't been around as long as fire and police, so people don't really fully understand what EMS does. And so uh, I always say that we're kind of like the Rodney Dangerfield of the first responders, you know, don't really get the respect. Part of it is the way it started. I mean, paramedics were not paramedics. They were basically ambulance drivers, but things have changed significantly since those times. So like, you know, to become an EMT, which is the basic level, it's uh, basically a semester-long course, and then you work for between one and three years, and then you go to paramedic school. And then paramedic school is a full year. So when you think about it, you know, that's like maybe two to four years of really being in the field to be become a paramedic. So the training is pretty extent, and the, the skills that a paramedic possesses and the interventions that a paramedic does, highly skilled. In the tracheal intubation, which basically anesthesiologists and respiratory therapists and paramedics are the ones that do that. Nurse anesthetists that do that, you know, starting intravenous lines, administering emergency cardiac medications, doing a thoracentesis, which is decompressing a hyperinflated chest. I mean, you know, there's some pretty invasive things that paramedics do. I don't know if everybody understands the depth and the breadth of what medics have to do and the decisions that they have to make on a daily basis. I imagine that when our paramedic staff here is stretched thin, I imagine that that experience is just increased. The the amount of traumatic experiences or, or opportunity for trauma. I mean, I can just tell you by what I see and experience. I primarily do all the clinical instruction for the paramedic program. so. I'm out in the field riding on the AMS with, with my students pretty much throughout the year. So, you know, I see it. I, I've seen the ebb and flow of the stress pre-COVID. And, then, and uh, you know, 2020 was, the call volume actually dropped in 2020 when COVID first came, came, came around because people were afraid to go to the hospital. So the call volume just dropped significantly. But then um, come the end of 2021 and the beginning of 2022 when Omicron came, the call volume increase 
in 2021 early it's kind of like the climate volume went somewhat to where it was before pre-covid but then what happened was that call volume did not decrease it stayed the same and then on top of that the covid calls came i mean people were calling for every little thing i mean people who thought they had COVID were calling the ambulance to say, hey, you know, I think I got COVID. Can you take me to the hospital and get a test? And so, you know, so you add that number of calls to the normal load, which is already high. I mean, it, it, it really put a lot of stress on the medics. So, I mean, you know, on an average day, it would be like maybe at a busy station, be 10 to 12 calls. And then I think like the beginning of 2022, the, call volume was like 15 to 24 calls on a shift, on a 12-hour shift. So that's a lot of calls. Granted, a lot of them were calls that were, like I mentioned, where people were not necessarily really needing a 911 ambulance, but they're calling, so it still takes its toll. And if they are infected, you still risk, as a paramedic, you risk exposure to these people. And if any of your equipment was exposed to this person, you need to decontaminate that equipment. All that is added stress. Everyone has to have a, a way to process the trauma that they endure. And one of the things that you've done in an effort to help them combat the physical and mental health effects of the job is to take them to a lo'i or a tarot field like, like we're in right now. Can you talk about how that opportunity started, how you came up with that idea? So one of the really important things in the UH system is to integrate the Hawaiian culture into the curriculum of all programs. Being a part of the system, wanting to, to do so and believing that it's important, we'd go to the lo'i, and we'd go to the one in Kaniwai. You know, it was a good experience, but I mean, we didn't really have a deep, deep understanding of the value, and, and it wasn't until we were in a lo'i, and in the lo'i we came out, and we went to the, I think this particular time, went to the lo'i up in Lions Arboretum, and we came out, and there was a la'o lapa'au practitioner that joined us, and she saw us coming out of Aloi and we went into the holly over there and she looked at us as we walked up and she said to us hey you know it's really good for you guys and we're kind of like uh yeah and she said well you know the work the kind of work you do what you're exposed to you know all the negative energy and the negative vibe in the air when you respond to a lot of your calls that's absorbed into your body yeah and so she said you know when you go into Aloi it's really good because the aina will draw out all that negative energy, and not only will it draw it out, it'll kind of replenish it. So if you've been in Aloe and you've worked in Aloe, when you're done with your day, you usually come out and you feel kind of tired and drained, but, you know, a good kind of tired and drained, you know, like like you, you put in some good work. And, and so that kind of said to us, oh, this is why we feel this way, because if all that bad energy or negative energy was drained out of us or taken out of us and we replenished, it kind of makes sense to feel that way. Since then, we've been pretty purposeful about coming to the Lo'i and why we're coming. And, and we started off with just students, and then we expanded into inviting our field instructors who are working paramedics to come with us. And uh, I want to say one of the most significant cases was after, I think it was like January 2020, there was a bad pedestrian accident, three-person fatality. and. The, the district chief had called me because she experienced the Lo'i and knew the value in dealing with traumatic experiences. And so she said, hey, can, can we bring the crews down to, you, to the Lo'i, the crews that responded to that triple fatality? And I said, sure, sure, you know. So we had about maybe seven, eight medics come down and they came to this Lo'i over here and they worked in the field, you know, and kind of sat around after. We, we talked a little bit and had lunch. And it was really good. And you could kind of somewhat sense that there was, there was some weight lifted off, off of these folks, you know. But the telltale thing was a few months later when I, had, I came back to the Loi with another group of students and the farm managers and the interns pulled me aside and they said, Uncle, pretty amazing to see the transformation of these medics, you know, because they said when they came, they were really like heavy and it was kind of like dark and, you know, just down. And they said, man, when they left, they said, they could see a marked difference. They were lighter, they were more upbeat, they were happier, you know, and so, you know, for us, it was kind of validation that, that there is something that happens when they come to the lo'i. And the cool thing, it's not necessarily having conversations about, oh, yeah, this, I experienced this and it made me feel really bad. It's, it's nothing like that. It's, it's, I want to say it's almost nonverbal. 
it's being in the Aina, being in the Lepo, the mud. One of the things I like about this Loi over here is the, the Lepo's deep, you know, because it's spring-fed. So if you work in the Loi, you get into the Loi, you get inside. And so if you go with the theory that the quote-unquote toxins are drawn out when you're in the mud, this is a really good place. The actual work that goes on, what, what are they doing? Are they clearing out weeds? Are they actually harvesting the kalo? All of the above. There are times when we come and we, we weed. You know, people who have yards or people who weed and are into weeding, and they know weeding is, can be kind of meditative. People sit in the loi and they talk story. It seems like the conversations flow real easy in the loi while they're pulling weeds. Other people, they want to be by themselves, so they kind of go off and be by themselves, and that's absolutely fine. But everybody's in the loi. Everybody's kind of working with their hands, putting their hands in the soil, you know, stepping in the soil. And other times when we're uh, cleaning the kalo, some of the farm managers will pull kalo, and then we just help them we clean it off. Other times we'll, and I can't remember the exact term, but it's basically once you've harvested the tar, you let the loi sit for a little bit, you're turning, turning the mud, you're turning it over, and you're kind of you know, getting ready to plant again. Done that. You know, whatever work needs to be done, we do. Before an opportunity like this to come and work in the land, what are some other ways that paramedics use to cope or process the things they experience on the job? From my experience, the number one way people de-stress is talking to their partners or talking to their colleagues. A lot of times it'll be, let's go have a beer and sit down and have a beer and talk. Or sometimes it's just, uh, I've been on a call where it's a really bad pediatric call and just really bad, really gut-wrenching. And uh, the medic that was in charge asked the chief to shut the unit down for a little bit. And we went down to the beach and just stood, stood on the beach and just kind of let, just, we all just kind of just let it all, just uh, the salt air and, you know, just kind of pull it all out of us. So people over the years, I mean, you know, like, Drinking, unfortunately, has been a common practice. So a nice thing about the loi, one of the medics that were here, he says, you know, it's usually the conversation that I had in the loi today is the conversation I have in the bar. So I said, it's, it's probably better that I have this conversation in the loi versus in the bar. And we're like, yeah, hell yeah. But then, you know, I, I, I've seen it kind of evolve over the years. It used to be, if you can't handle it, you shouldn't be in the field. You know? So you got to suck it up and do whatever you got to do. So, you know, I think a lot of people just consciously or subconsciously would get in the ocean, surf, dive, whatever. A lot of guys that work, would work out, lifting, you know, not as CrossFit, you know, that kind of stuff, running, or the people would have hobbies. I mean, I think people find ways to do it because you, you have to, you have to. You know, just being that the university system wants us to integrate the culture, it's like, well, shoot, this is, this is the culture's all around us, so let's, let's utilize it. A lot of bugs here. I've had a couple crawling me. Here's a spider. <laughs> I don't know where he went. I mean, I'm not afraid of spiders, but... We are sitting outside. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to see... This is a lo and the loi is... The loi is teeming with life, man. All kinds of life over here. You know, like you were saying, there's plenty of ways to de-stress, to process. And I imagine there are many first responders out there who don't know that there are programs available to help them process or maybe feel like they don't need it, or maybe they know they need it, but are too shamed to admit it. What would you say to those paramedics, those first responders? The first thought that came to my mind is I think the organizations themselves, the EMS agencies, I think they need to kind of start really looking at how can we help our providers de-stress and not just kind of you know, say, well, do it on your day off or here's a discount on a membership. I think there needs to be a greater conscious effort working with the whole to de-stress. Somebody that's searching, I mean, you talk to your friends within the department, what do people do? Because guaranteed there's people out there that longtime veterans that are healthy to take care of themselves and they know how. And so, you know, just ask. Just, you got to do sometimes, you just got to ask, yeah. What's the best way the public can show their appreciation for paramedics, for first responders? I think, uh, Thanking them. I've seen people during COVID, and you're on the road, just people come up and say, thank you very much for what you're doing. And it's really cool. But I think, you know, the community can pull together and do things for first responders, whether it be and have a first responder day at Aloi, or there was a time where a couple of groups of paramedics went out to Camp Erdman to do a ropes course, but have those kind of, it could be community-sponsored, community-led 
things like that. I mean, be a potluck, let's feed the paramedics, you know, whatever, you know, let's, let's take care of the firefighters, let's, you know. So, I mean, and that's kind of a very local kind of way to think, being community-minded like that, but I think it'd be highly effective, you know. I think that's, that, that'll speak volumes. Thanks for allowing me to come out to the Lo'i and meet with you and hang out in this beautiful hale overlooking the taro fields. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much for uh, coming out. That was KCC's paramedic clinical coordinator, Mark Kunemune, talking with HPR's Russell Subiono about how to show your appreciation to emergency medical technicians and paramedics during National EMS Week or any day. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering the Global MBA with 21-month, 24-month, and 36-month options. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Dean Slider, author of The Dharma Bum's Guide to Western Literature. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about finding nirvana in classic literature. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Well, that does it for us today. Tomorrow, we talk cesspools. Kamehameha School surveys its 3,000 properties for large capacity cesspools that need to be shut down. We get an update. Caller Talkback Line, 808-792-8217. About anything you've heard on our air, email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.